I'm Lisa Thornhill and I'm a researcher in the Contextual Safeguarding team and I'm here today talking to two parents about what they think about the Contextual Safeguarding approach. Welcome. So we have um, Jess and Georgie here. Hi, hi Jess and Georgie. Hiya. Hi both. Um, so grateful for you to, to taking the time to talk to me today. So I thought we could start off by talking about what you think about how the child protection system currently responds to risk outside of the family home. Okay, so um, I think, unfortunately, it's not always the first port of call, you know. Um, it's normally parents that are scrutinised and put under the microscope um, instead of, you know, outside influences being looked at first. Um, you know, I feel like, you know, instead of being supported and guided by the child protection system, we're kind of judged and it's a really stressful and upsetting time um, where there's a lot of guilt and blame going on anyway as a parent. Mm. And it's really, you know, it's just awful to have somebody come in and start scrutinising you when you're trying your best to keep your child safe. Thanks, Georgie. It's really powerful to hear. Is there anything that you'd like to add to that, um, Jess? Yes, I mean, I I have long since thought that there, I mean, although that there is a, a lot more awareness now than there was when my own family was going through this, but there, it's still too piecemeal and there really does need to be a kind of common framework and a common approach for this, for parents to be able to know exactly where to go to. So in my own particular instance, you know, I, I went, I, you know, I thought I was following a procedure and I, I you know, and I, and I went through various channels, but actually it turned out that, you know, we got caught between various agencies it felt like a really fragmented um, experience. It felt like, in a sense, re-traumatizing re of, of actually what had happened. Mm. And so, you know, I just think that there needs to be a lot more clarity. There needs to be a lot more insight into a kind of a common approach for the different agencies to be involved. Because although sometimes that it's, it's spoken about in those terms, that actually doesn't happen. And so, you know, along with the kind of increasing awareness of the problem and this is a kind of very unique set of problems um there just needs to be a much more, there needs to be a much more um clear view of a common common approach and a common framework for dealing with this problem mm. thanks thanks jess um i'm imagining if you're in a position where you're feeling like the agencies aren't having a common approach that that might add to a situ the distress of a situation that's already really difficult to deal with. You mentioned um, the need for a sort of a trauma-informed approach. I wonder what you both think about what would help parents um, when their child is at risk from harm outside of the home. 
definitely um you know for a start it needs to be a non-judgmental approach mm. by professionals you know um like i said before the blame is is huge and and the guilt is huge um and definitely information regarding the perpetrators and how they operate mm. you know what how they coerce your children and use your children to get what they need you know and how and, and basically what you're up against really mm. because you don't always know what you're up against you know your children aren't communicating with you you've got these agencies coming in and it's a really frightening time and i think knowing how a perpetrator thinks and how they're operating knowing what you're up against can really help you know when your child is at risk it can really help you put the safeguarding in place at home mm. so that you can support your children mm. <clears throat> thanks georgie jess um i would say that that the agencies involved really do need to take fully on board parents experience and families experiences of this again sometimes there's lip service to this but the 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 processes or the policies don't actually fully allow for that space. Mm. And um, it's only really by kind of getting that fine grain of detail from, you know, the people who've experienced this, because as I've already said, it is, you know, it is a distinctive crime that, you know, that happens here. Mm. And I sometimes think that the models that are in place just don't, just don't, are not um, best suited for, you know, for for the complexities um, involved. Mm. So I think that you know that there needs to be a full account of the experience of the people who've gone through this. Obviously, you know, the children, um, but the families, so that they're you know, so that this can actually feed forward into policy making and, and guidelines and, and refer back to that kind of common approach that I mentioned. And just to pick up on your your point about sometimes you feel you're between agencies that was certainly the case and sometimes we felt that there were different cultures and different ideologies driving those cultures so you know for example we we felt that actually sometimes these agencies were completely contradicting one another so we were kind of caught up in the middle of that too that's really interesting um Oh, that's really interesting, Jess. I think that's a really important point. And I'm wondering um, what you think about uh, the contextual safeguarding approach as a, as a way of agencies looking at the context outside of the family home as a way forward. I wonder what ideas you might have about that. Um, well, I, th I think this is a really, you know, a, it would be a significant step forward because, like I mentioned a moment ago, the existing models are very much kind of trying to look at this through the lens of what's going on in the family. And that's just not suited to this, you know, to this circumstance. So, you know, just just the kind of phrase contextual safeguarding means that you're actually taking full account of all of the different variables in that particular kind of context you know um whether that's you know whether that's kind of whether whether it's kind of coming through a school or whether it's coming through the neighborhood 
um, who else is in the picture? And I think that really, it's a very positive and significant step because it breaks away from the kind of the other models that just, to my mind anyway, certainly didn't work in our case. Um, and I can't see how they would in other cases, because like I said, this is quite a unique um or you know it, it's quite i shouldn't say unique it's a it's a distinct problem that's you know differentiated from kind of abuse that takes place within the home so the, the current models just don't fit yeah i agree you know it's a very outdated look on on a world with technology that is moving very fast you know faster than we can keep up with and again, I'm going to say, you know, this is about the perpetrator. This is about the people that are pulling our children into this world. This isn't about parents. This is about the perpetrator, you know. And that could be online, outside schools, you know, in playgrounds. We are looking in the wrong places at home. Now, I'm not saying every home is perfect. But what I'm saying is, you know, when you're talking about online you're not getting into the mind of a, the perpetrator by scrutinising a family that are doing their best to support their children. I would just add to that by saying that um, also when you're trying to protect your child and if you are working with multi-agencies, that sometimes you can be given conflicting advice. So what you think is, you know, keeping your safe child, uh, keeping your child safe um, can can be turned around and twisted, which it was, um, so that it looks as though actually this is you know this is a kind of breach in in some kind of safeguarding. So we get come back to that thing where we come, you know, we get kind of conflicting pieces of advice from different agencies around how how to keep your child safe. So that's another aspect to this. Mm. Thanks, Jess. And I was, I sort of, you made me think about a point um, that Georgie made around sort of people outside schools. Um, and you may have had a chance to have a look at some of the materials which involve, um, which describe the contextual safeguarding approach in practice. So one of the examples is um, around a, a, a school assessment where um, if harm had occurred, near a school or in a school there would be an assessment of the whole school and then an intervention that looked at um, behaviour logs and experiences of disclosure and the physical safety surrounding the school. Um, I'm wondering if either of you have any thoughts on that as an approach or any worries about that as an approach. widen our you know our microscope don't we you mm. can't it, it's, it's like uh, Jess said it's it's an outdated model to look at the home mm. you have to look outside when your children become teenagers you know they're not always with you and they're going to make decisions and be influenced by people that aren't around you mm. you know that you may not even know about so I think, yes, these areas do need to be looked at by professionals, definitely. Yes, I would, I would agree with that. I would also see that school, you know, the school context is one, one um, strand in, mm. in what I would 
hope to be a fuller context. So um, often how this, well, certainly in my own experience, I should say, that there was there were networks um, within the neighbourhood and people were aware of these networks, but they didn't always want to kind of just talk about it. So there was that whole aspect of kind of the what was known in the community and how to kind of tap into that to keep people safe mm. or to, you know, for, for people to feel that they could actually speak about what was going on on their own doorstep. So the school was important because it was in that neighbourhood, but but I think it even goes beyond the school. It, it's about kind of networks, it's about neighbourhoods, it's about, it's about people looking out for one another, it's about parents. So in one instance, um, a parent sort of alerted me to something that was going on, but that parent lived in the same neighbourhood. So I think it's, you know, I think it's very, very much connected. It's school, it's community, it's family, and... Um, it's all of those things kind of working together, if that makes sense. It absolutely does um, make sense. And I think I'm really interested in um, your ideas about what you think enables a neighbourhood to feel like they can share these ideas about um, how um, how to increase safeguarding in the neighbourhood. So if, I, if for example... Um, children's services were to um to try and do an assessment of the neighborhood what do you think um would enable that what would make people want to be involved in something like that parents specifically i think that you have to look at where there is um already a good track record of this kind of work where communities come together around gang violence for example where you have you know, successful schemes in place, because often what's a, a problem in some of these neighbourhoods is that they feel like that, you know, social services is another kind of agency that's parachuting in to kind of spy, mm. to spy on them. Um, so it really has to be kind of grassroots. It has to come up through the community. It's about making people aware of what's going on on their doorsteps, about making families vulnerable, their children vulnerable, but but putting things in place so that people feel empowered to actually, you know, to engage in, in awareness raising or community schemes or whatever the, whatever those projects look like, they do have to be rooted in the community, um, you know, as well as working with the relevant professionals, of course, but it, I think it has to be kind of grassroots. That's my, my perspective on it anyway. I agree, you know, youth services and community projects absolutely help keep children safe, you know, it lowers isolation, you know, youth workers are there to support children, you know, children, especially teenagers, they don't always want to tell their mum and dad, mum, dad, what's going on in their life. Mm. So youth workers are there to kind of pick that up, to mop up that communication and perhaps give children some support in an area where parents possibly might not know or might not be told, mm. if that makes sense. You know, maintaining communication with children is key. And I think youth services and youth workers are absolutely pivotal to that, 100%. Thanks, Jess. I think that you make some incredibly important points there about 
um, the role of parents and also the kind of the role of the community and professionals within the community of providing that that guardianship. I'm just wondering what <clears throat> what might enable or um, or put parents off from um, engaging with services when there's a risk outside of the home. I mean that that's that's a tough question and 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 it, it you know it, it can it can range from just not having capacity or time or being so snowed under with other things to a fear i mean one of the things that i definitely encountered was um you know when when friends found out about what was going on they were really fearful they wanted to shut down because nobody really wants to think about this um, so it can range from practical things, you know, not having enough capacity or time to, to a fear, um, a barrier in that direction. So there's, there's lots of different elements to why people engage or, or, or disengage, I think. Yeah. I just think, I, you know, you've got to be able to trust the people that are coming into your home. You know, that trust, you've, you need to be able to stay informed because you know there's a lot of high staff turnover as well you'll get allocated a support worker and then they will leave and somebody else comes and and it's like it's like Jess said earlier you're really traumatized because you have to explain yourself again and again and again you know I also think that it's important to stick to any promises that, that are made. You know, I'm going to look into that for you. I will look at that for you. you know, don't then walk away and forget about it because this family are struggling and they, that could be a really important thing for them. So, you know, if you say to a family, I'm going to look into that, I'm going to do that, then do it. You know, make sure you do it and that you communicate that. Mm, absolutely. So important for professionals uh, to hear that thank you yeah i would just agree wholeheartedly with the trust i think that you know um speaking from my own experience i started off with trust so it wasn't like i was distrustful to start with and that trust completely vaporized away after you know after how we were being treated so I think trust is absolutely key if you want if you want to keep parents on board or you know if those further extended networks then trust is absolutely critical here mm. yeah absolutely one of the um approaches that we've been testing is um called safety planning and it's an alternative um to a kind of a child in need arrangement or child protection arrangement and sometimes it can be a, a sort of a combination of those things but essentially a safety plan is really trying to bring professionals together and parents and the young person to to really focus on coming up with a plan for how to change uh, the actual context in which harm is occurring um, I'm wondering what you think about that as a as an as an idea so um so an example might be that um, a young person um experiences um an assault in a park and then um the 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 parent and the professionals and the young person are brought together by safeguarding but rather than focusing on 
this individual young person, the focus of the safety plan would be any changes that might be made to the park itself to make that safer. Does that make sense? I mean, I think it's, I think in theory, or anything like that, it is. it sounds really good. I mean, anything that can make those spaces safer. I think if I'm trying to apply it to my own situation, mm. I mean, it was a change of context that ultimately resolved it, but we, we, we initiated that change of context and we didn't have any choice. Um, so I think it's, I think it's a tricky one to resolve because the, the problem itself is so embedded. So, um, I don't have the answer for that, but I but I think in theory, change of context is, you know, it's an interesting idea, and I think that it could partially be, you know, um, part of the solution. But because of these 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 problems are so kind of embedded, and they are, you know, they're part of networks, as I've said. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be quite a tricky one to resolve. I'm sorry, I, I you know, I feel a little bit kind of. Yeah, I don't really know what the answer is to that one. Thank you for sharing that. I think that it's an important reflection from your own experience to think about the complexity of um, harm that might be occurring or has occurred over a long a period of time um, and the additional challenges that that might bring to something like trying to assess a neighbourhood or a, a, or intervene in a in, with a location. I think that that's an important reflection. So thank you for sharing that. I mean, I think you know, I think something like again, it would have to be kind of linked to a general awareness racing and and full throttle on kind of educating people and and a sea a sort of sea change of attitudes around this problem where a safe space could be created for young, you know, young girls in particular, or young people. I mean, that you know, we, you know, it's, I'm talking about my daughter, but I mean, you know, I, I also know that young, young boys are, are vulnerable, where, you know, where, where there is a safe space where this, this could be raised or discussed or, you know, where people feel that they could go within the community. Um, as a kind of drop-in session I don't know but I could sort of see how that might have worked in my situation but I think it would I think that would take a lot of work in terms of actually turning around attitudes Mm. um yeah thank you um another example um I'm interested to hear your thoughts on is um sort of intervening with the peer group itself so one of the examples of a contextual safeguarding approach would be to look at peer groups as a whole, identify strengths within the peer group, identify any um, uh, sort of guardian guardianship capacity. And by that, I mean um, sort of ability to sort of protect each other. We know young people sometimes disclose uh, to their friends um, and seek safety from their friends and seek safety in groups. Um, and sometimes harm occurs in groups. Um, one of the things that, one of the responses that we've been looking at is this idea of peer mapping. So professionals will map out a peer group um, and and to try and make an assessment of that that peer group. And I'm wondering sort of as parents, what you think about that 
as an idea or if you have any concerns about that I mean, yeah again you know in, in an ideal world peer mapping is is a good thing but it's not always that easy mm-hmm. you know peers often cover for their friends you know and they're not really understanding the implications of of what that means or the danger that that puts that child in um you know oh i'm i'm going here can you come tell mum that i'm at your house you know yeah yeah okay and it's Hmm. it's not as parents you're completely in the dark you know um would peer mapping help i don't know i I just i just don't know if it would or not Hmm. yeah i feel the same way um as Georgina that I think in certainly in my own case that I can see how it might look good on paper and it's theoretically possible but I again I think there's so there's complexities involved in the relationships and um, you know I, I think that like Georgina says a certain amount of covering up a certain amount of kind of egging on sometimes and actually it was only you know it was only brought to my attention by another parent who'd heard from their child so um you know i think that it's it's really really uh, very very complicated i think if you had perhaps a more expanded idea of of peers in terms of perhaps slightly older teenagers who've gone through this to be able to run workshops or sessions with people who are just come through it if that makes sense but mm-hmm. I think you know maybe a more expanded idea of, of peers rather than their own peers but I think in my own situation I think peers would have been of, of limited and in actual fact and <laughs> quite often they did egg on um yeah so it wasn't it was limited I agree you know and that's kind of the covering up and the thinking you're helping but in your young brain not really realizing the seriousness of the situation you know it really compounded you know our situation and and I think yeah Jess is right that idea of maybe a peer mentor where you've had children that have come through this and are now that little bit older and have kind of turned it around to come in and say this is what helped this is what didn't help you know Mm. And as parents, how um, what might you think about professionals sort of recording young people's names and um, what would you what would you think and feel about that as parents? Do you think? Sorry, I'm not clear. Recording their names and their project, you mean? Yeah. So with. Um, one of the things that we've been thinking about with um, peer mapping is is what whether parents would want to be informed if their um, child was being recorded on a map by safeguarding services, um, and you know how they might be like to be consulted about something like that. But let's let's just say let's say you have a girl that's being groomed online she tells a friend and then that name those names get put on a peer map mm. that friend then says so and so is doing this and then her name gets out into school mm. and then it's all downhill from there you know 
then not only has she got the shame of, of, of that, but her name's on this list that she's got no control over. Mm. I think it's really tricky mm. having your names on a list. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. So I think that's really important for us to be aware of, so thank you. Yeah, I think something like that would have to be handled very carefully. I'm just thinking about it from the perspective of the child in the ways that Georgina's outlined, that even if this, you know, even as a parent, if I could see that this was potentially quite useful and quite helpful, I think as a child, it might feel like it was slightly, um, you know, slightly discriminatory so that there was some kind of yeah there was there was something kind of unpleasant about behind it so i, I you know that there was something i'm um, searching for the word um not like persecution isn't it it's like yes. being persecuted yeah you know and, and then and if yes. other parents find out well you're not hanging around with her anymore then that friend's gone no that's that yeah. support gone mm-hmm. it's really tricky really really tricky yeah. And I think even even if it didn't come out out sort of out in the open, um, I think it, I think because of the nature of the crimes, mm. it keys into a personal sense of shame. I think that would be the tricky thing with that kind of tool. There's the, there's the, there's the anxiety that that could be one of the, the byproducts of something like that, no matter how well it's framed or intentioned that this could end up, um, you know, creating a sort of sense of shame or you know the focus being on me because i'm on this this map somewhere does does that make sense it absolutely makes sense and there's such important reflections that i'm just yeah i'm very grateful for you for you sharing um because they're really important for us in the contextual safeguarding team to consider and also professionals using the tools because one of the things that we've reflected on with peer mapping is, is all the th- a lot of the, the points that you've um, that you've raised in terms of um, children's rights and um, and parents' rights, and also then what happens with the map, how it's stored, and I think you've really captured some really important points in relation to um, into what might be a worry or concern for parents, particularly the reference in in relation to. Um, to shame I think is really important for for people to to hear about at this point I think I'm just going to really give you the opportunity to say um, to say anything else that you'd like to about um, the idea of trying to change the context itself where young people experience harm Um, and it's just that I you know I think that there is such an urgent need for change in how you know in, in how this situation is currently being handled albeit that you know there are small sort of incremental changes but there is such an urgency around it I, I think that anything that can start to shift at those older models mm. is you know is, is to be welcomed and so anything that can sort of shine a light on current practice and the deficits there um, is to my mind, you know, these sorts of discussions are really, really important and where parents and people who've kind of gone through this can feed into that. 
um, is, is just really important. So that's all I wanted to say, really. Thank you. I, I just, I think it's really important to remember that there's people, we're dealing with people here, human beings that, you know, have feelings and, and are trying their best and children that are being, that are victims, really. Mm. 